Well, we are in John 19, and we come this week to um, one of the most tragic ironies in all of Scripture and really all of history, but at the same time, one of the most incredible moments of God's sovereignty, again, in all of Scripture and of all humanity. Let's pick it up with verse 1, John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, these are both incredibly troubling words once you really see what's going on here, but they are also beautiful and amazing. And they show at what great depth of love you have loved your creation and your people. We pray that in this time that you'd be with us through your spirit, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would grow in our minds and in our hearts, our emotions and our bodies, that we would want to follow after you, that our hearts, our affections, our will would be turned to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so after Pilate had given the crowds the choice between Barabbas, who was a murdering, failed revolutionary, and Jesus, they chose Barabbas. Well, Pilate, in turn, had Jesus flogged. As an aside, before we get to to that, it's worth noting that Barabbas was exactly the sort of Messiah figure that many uh, Jewish people wanted, and he's by no means unusual Not that there was many of them, but he fit with a pattern that you can find in the first century all the way into the second uh, century in Judea. He he exuded strength, nerve, love for his people, and hatred 
for his enemies. So in a certain sense, he was a good patriot. And he wasn't a caricature of, of masculinity, kind of like you see among gym bros or, or good old boys waving their flags up and down, you know, Commerce Street or whatever, kind of making big claims. No, it was real, violent, standing up for the homeland under brutal Roman taxation and occupation in order to make Israel great again. And though Barabbas was a failure, at least he had stood up to Rome. At least he didn't back down from a fight. Now, in comparison, what did Jesus do? Sure, impressive miracle worker. But he's bound. He's being tried before Pilate without so much as a fight. What kind of king is that? Would we vote for a king like that? I don't think so. Don't good kings fight for their people? Don't good kings stand up to evil? Well, Pilate recognized that Jesus was not like Barabbas and rightly saw that he was innocent of the charge of being an insurrectionist. But at the same time, the Jewish leadership had him over a barrel and everyone, including Pilate, knew it. So he offered torture as a substitute in order to pacify their demands. Now, it was not beyond Pilate to put an innocent man to death, of course, especially if it meant it would save his own skin. I mean, he was a typical Roman administrator. Even so, Pilate didn't want to give in to the Sanhedrin's demand for crucifixion. So instead, he had Jesus flogged. Now, apparently, there were varying degrees or classifications of intensity for this sort of punishment. And the kind that Jesus faced was the pretty rough kind. It's, it involved uh, whips with sharp tips that would tear chunks or strips of his flesh off uh, with each blow. And it's exactly what Isaiah 53 has in mind when it talks about God's suffering servant. So this is no mere beating as if there is such a thing as, as merely a beating. It was, it was torture. It was torture akin to what was on offer with Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo, Guantanamo, but it was, it was far more brutal, far more bloody. And it was public. It was public. We read that the soldiers who, who tortured Jesus twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and then they caped him in a, a purple robe. In Matthew's account, uh, they also put a reed in his hand, which functioned like a, a pretend scepter. So the soldiers bowed down to him and they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews before spitting on him and hitting him both with that, that, that reed, that fake scepter in, in their hands as well. Now, some scholars, and I, I happen to agree with them, think that the soldiers themselves were Samaritans, that the soldiers themselves were Samaritans. It was common for the Romans to conscript or, or hire local people to serve in the military or as civil servants. So for example, you can see that with Matthew, right? Matthew was a Jew who served as a tax collector for the Romans. That's why Jewish people hated him. He was a traitor. And it is well known that the Samaritans, the people to the north of Jerusalem who were half Jewish and much hated by the Jewish people, that they were recruited into the Roman army in Judea and they were used for dirty work for things like torture and crucifixion that elite troops like the Praetorian would not do. So that ups the ante when you start to think about that, about what's happening here. The hatred between the Jews and Samaritans was both religious 
and racial all mixed together. And we can see that hatred coming through with the apparent glee the soldiers took in, in mocking Jesus as Israel's king. This guy, this Jew is Israel's king. What a joke. It also adds even more depth to Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan and just how radical Jesus' teaching about loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you really goes. You know, no one keeps Jesus' teaching without the spirits at work in him, and no one, I mean no one, will actually desire to love a neighbor, a Samaritan, as Jesus teaches it, unless she is convinced that Jesus is Lord and that life with him as he defines it in his kingdom is the best life there is. As we've said in weeks past, Jesus is a far superior Jonah, who as opposed to the first Jonah, loves that God the Father is full of grace and kindness to his enemies. And the Romans were very much like the Ninevites. They were very much like the Assyrians. And God, Jesus delights to do God the Father's will, even as his enemies are full on seeking to destroy him in his body in that moment. You know, for good reason, Paul begins his letters with grace and peace. That's not religious formalism. That's not just a thing Christians say. That's how God has really and truly and continues to approach the world through Jesus. Well, after Jesus endured the flogging, Pilate brought him back out before the crowds, adorned in the crown of thorns and robe. And he said two important things. I don't think he, I know he did not realize the import of what he's saying, but these were critical. First, Pilate found no guilt in Jesus. That's a legal verdict. As the governor of Judea, it was his role to adjudicate and give verdicts. Pilate had the power of the sword to bring justice to the wicked and to defend and protect the innocent. Jesus would go on to tell in our passage, Pilate, that the authority he had, that Pilate had, was derivative. It was given to him by God and God alone. Uh, and to God alone would Pilate be responsible for how he used that power. That's the exact same thought you find in places like Romans 13. God gives everyone power and authority. Some people have more than others. So power and authority are not in themselves evil or, or problematic. Modern people though, and because of the influence of Marx among others, define all power as oppressive, but that's, that's not how the Bible sees it. No, the question always is a question of whether we are using our power and authority for selfish gain, like a tyrant, like what we see with Pilate in the Sanhedrin, or for the good of others like what we see King Jesus doing in this moment. At this moment in the action of, of the story, Pilate was actually doing right by declaring that Jesus was innocent. That was no little thing. That's a big deal, in fact, but, but he, would soon, he would soon change his actions despite that verdict. Now, the second thing Pilate says that is important is behold the man. There's no way Pilate understood just how important his words really were. But what he's saying is, here is the true man, the true Adam. And as the man, Pilate, representing worldly power in that moment, Pilate invites God's people 
to behold Jesus and take in his glory. Here is the righteous one of Israel. Now he would soon go one step farther and invite the people of God to behold their king. And he wasn't being sarcastic. He wasn't mocking Jesus. He was sincere. So think about this now. Here's Roman power representing the world exiled from God because of her sin, entreating God's chosen people to take a good, hard look at her king sent from God, who was the true Adam, the righteous one. That's what's happening. And the crowds led by the Jewish leadership are having none of it. In response, like Cain in his jealousy and anger against his brother Abel, the chief priests cry out, crucify him, crucify him. They double down on it. And Pilate's starting to, to lose his nerve, and apparently he was already somewhat afraid in this whole, this whole situation, tells them to go crucify Jesus themselves, something he knew they could not do. Only Romans could crucify, and he's passing off his power and authority to the Sanhedrin. And again, they're not having that. They're not having it. They want Pilate to crucify Jesus. They don't just want Jesus dead. I mean, they could have stoned him or murdered him in some other way, and the Romans wouldn't have cared. No, they want him shamed and humiliated by Roman power and to be seen by Israel as not just a failure, but as a cursed son, according to Deuteronomy. We read in Matthew's account that Pilate feared that a riot would soon break out, which was something he could not afford as a governor. See, one of the chief jobs of a governor like Pilate was to keep the peace. And that sometimes meant ruling with, with a heavy hand for which crucifixion served as a potent warning. That's why they did it. But more often than not, quelling riots before they ever began was what Rome expected from its provincial governors. You know, after all, the purpose of conquering another people or taking another land was to get rich off of them. That's why you did it, especially by way of taxes. And if an area was unstable, it slowed down economic growth for Rome. So a riot would make Pilate look bad in Rome. And the Jewish leadership, they're savvy. They know it. In response to his quip to just go crucify Jesus themselves, the leadership says, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now, this, of course, is the real reason the Jewish leadership want Jesus dead. They know, they know he's not another Barabbas, but they also don't believe Jesus is the son of God. No, despite all the evidence, they think Jesus has put himself in the place of God. Now, the irony of their charge against Jesus is that in practice, this is exactly what they themselves had done. They are guilty of this themselves. So instead of being servants of the Most High God, being his, his stewards over the things of God, they had usurped his authority and stood in his place using the temple in God's name in order to prop themselves up in power and status and prestige and wealth. And that's what's in view in Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21, if you've ever read that, where Jesus tells the story of a man 
who left his vineyard in the care of tenants who were supposed to care for the vineyard and produce a crop for him. The tenants refused to give the man what was owed him and denied every attempt to collect. And when he finally sent his son to collect what was his, they murdered the son and took the vineyard for themselves. Jesus told that story as a warning to these men who were now calling for his crucifixion. We read that this actually frightens Pilate, even as he was already on edge with Jesus. In Matthew's account, Pilate's wife sent word to him to not have dealings with Jesus, who she calls that righteous one, because of some troubling dreams she had had about him. Now, People in the ancient world took dreams way more seriously than we do. For us, we, ah, dreams are dreams. They're just weird. That's not how they saw them at all. So this, hearing this from his wife certainly bothered him even more. But more so, people in the ancient world rightly knew that there was more to this life than meets the eye. And Jesus was not the first person to claim divinity. For example, just within the Roman Empire. I mean, you can go through ancient history. I won't. But just within the Roman Empire, Julius Caesar after his death was claimed to have become a god, he was declared a god, and a temple complete with priesthood was soon devoted to his worship. In turn, his nephew and adopted son and heir, Octavian, who had become known as Caesar Augustus, claimed to be the son of God and the prince of peace. He too was worshiped as a god in his own lifetime. And none of that talk, we would think, oh, this is just political... What are they doing? No, no, no. None of that talk was tongue in cheek. None of it. With everyone, you know, kind of giving a, a knowing nod and a little wink about the whole thing as if everyone just played along with the charade. No, people took this seriously. It's why claiming Jesus was the true son of God was considered treasonous and blasphemous in the Roman Empire before the 300s and in some cases got you killed. So maybe this strange, off-putting figure standing before Pilate who seemed to not be intimidated whatsoever might really be the son of God. So Pilate asked him, where are you from? Or as we might say it, who are you, man? But the way Pilate asked the question shows up throughout the Gospel of John. Where Jesus comes from, where are you from, that phrase, is of ultimate concern. If he's just some guy, then so what? Kill him and be done with it. But if he comes from the right hand of the Father, which is what Jesus claimed over and over again, then everything else is different. Now, in response, Jesus, just like the servant of Isaiah 53, remains silent. The evidence at hand is more than enough. Pilate by his own words, should consider carefully. And Pilate, completely unnerved, threatened Jesus about having the power to do with him whatever he wanted. And Jesus, he doesn't cower. He's not fearful at all. No, he tells Pilate where his power actually comes from. And it's not self-bestowed. He's not his own man. And it's not in Rome either. Jesus then tells Pilate that he will be held accountable for his actions but the greater sin comes from the shepherds of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, 
and the Pharisees who have become the wicked tenants. Pilate then sought to release Jesus, but the Sanhedrin, they outmaneuver him once again. And they say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And this, well, this is the death knell to any motivations Pilate might have had to do right by Jesus. To not be Caesar's friend would be, of course, a huge political blow to Pilate, but it actually might be far worse for him too. And of course, the Sanhedrin were right. In Romans, in Rome's eyes, anyone who, who takes it upon himself to be a king, like say Barabbas, by definition opposes Caesar. And in turn, Caesar usually puts such people on crosses or killed them in some public spectacle in the circus or something like that. Pilate, fearing the loss of his status more than he feared Jesus or doing what was right, gave into the Jewish leadership's demands and he put on a show of being innocent of Jesus's blood. But his hands weren't tied. His hands weren't tied. He could have denied the Jewish leadership. He could have been a strong leader, but he was weak. So despite that political theater, Jesus's blood was on his hands. He gave the order. It was on him. Now what comes next is incredibly important because it's the moment when Jesus was enthroned as king. John writes that it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour, that is about noon, and from the judgment seat, that is the official position of the Roman government in Judea, the Roman governor declares to Israel as represented by her leadership, behold your king. Keep in mind, Jesus was still adorned in the crown of thorns and the purple robe and so forth. So what you should see, and this is what John wants you to see, and what I'm doing, I'm just paraphrasing from Frederick Bruner's wonderful commentary, it's so good. Basically, this is what you should see. Official Rome declared to official Israel from the most judicial spot in Israel, like say from the steps of the Supreme Court, at one of Israel's holiest hours, that Jesus is king. And what makes this a holy hour is that on noon, on the day of preparation, was when the, it was the exact time when the Passover lambs started to be slaughtered in the temple precincts in preparation for the Passover itself. That's why John mentions it. So at noon, think about this. So at noon, when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in preparation for their role as atonement for the people, official Rome tells official Israel, Jesus is king. It's unbelievable. If you ever wanted an argument for God's sovereignty or predestination, here's a perfect passage that God has been working since the fall of Adam and Eve throughout history, through all its twists and turns, bringing about this moment through his unfaithful people to redeem them. It's unbelievable. It blows my mind. And not long after this, Pilate would nail this same title, King of the Jews. 
over Jesus's head on the cross to make his enthronement official and public. So remember, you know, before this Pilate had declared Jesus's true humanity, behold the king, uh, excuse me, behold the man. Now he announces his true messianic royalty. Behold your king. So whether Pilate realized the impact of his words or not, I don't think he did. He was making an imperial decree, and we, as the readers of the book of John, are to see this as the moment Jesus took the throne. So what Rome and Israel saw as failure and mockery, remember how we started the service with that quote from Bobby, God saw as triumph. If you want to see the heart of who God is and what his kingdom looks like, Look no further than to this moment and the moments that follow. The cross is where God's heart, as gentle and lowly, full of steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness, is most on display. You want to know who God is? Look here. This is it. This is the moment where the one who entered Jerusalem on a donkey is coronated and takes the throne. In response to this, the leadership leading the crowd said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And when Pilate asked them again, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests in full rebellion against God intentionally and with full knowledge of what they were doing, break the covenant with God and say, we have no king but Caesar. So the chief priests in their attempt to take Israel for themselves and put themselves in God's place, have rejected God's, God himself through Moses' covenant, which they were so proud of, killed his son, and foolishly thought, now it's all ours. And within 35 years or so, Jerusalem would be raised to the ground by the Romans, the ones of which they had placed their allegiance and faith and the temple would be no more. Now, I've, I've struggled uh, to find a way to end this sermon. I've struggled all week on this, and I think I finally hit upon it this morning. Uh, the temptation is to ask us where we identify more. Because you're invited as you read these biblical texts to identify with the characters you find in them. Is it the crowds? Is it Pilate? Is it Jewish leadership? And, and there's, there's a place for that. Of course, we, we've all acted in those, those ways at one time or another. And I make the mistake because I have to give the sermon title used by Tuesday. That's the wrong title for this sermon. And it shows you where my, my mind was focusing on the sinfulness of the people. But I think it's better to, to take seriously Pilate's invitation to consider who Jesus is. Who is this man? Who is this king? Brennan Manning once observed that if you had asked John, the author of this book, what his primary identity in life was, he would not reply, I am a disciple, an apostle, an evangelist, or an author of one of the four gospels. No, he would say, I am the one Jesus loves. And so are you. And so are you. Jesus, the the true Adam, the true king of this world, remained faithful to his people. Even as they called for him to be crucified and shamed and humiliated and cursed by God. And he did it 
not because he's dutiful, but because of his love for them and in turn his love for us. So to end with John's own words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so they may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. The light of the world is shining in the darkness and he life in him. You are the ones he loves. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, As Calvin prayed in his, his prayer not that long ago, you were the God of steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness has shown your love and kindness and faithfulness to countless generations. You have shown that love to our little ones. You've shown it to us. There is no God like you. We're so thankful for this kindness and this mercy we have through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We pray all of this in his name through the power of the Spirit.